Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. We're continuing in our series on the book of Romans, and today we're in Romans 1, 18 to 32. And this passage of Romans is essentially where you begin what we might call the downward spiral. There's a lot of intense talk in this passage about the sin of humanity, and it sort of just gets worse and worse and worse, like one of those pennies going down, uh, like a giving, what, what's that called? You know what I'm talking uh, about? I know what you're talking about, because I loved those growing up, but I have no clue what they are. I always get, like, a penny from Grandma Jane and yeah. put them in there and just watch it at the mall. Whatever those are called, the pennies going down the twirly thing until it eventually drops in, that's what Romans 1, 18 to 32 essentially is. Another <laughs> illustration that we're giving through this is we're trying to see the mountainous heights, the beautiful heights of the gospel. But if we're going to get there, we first have to walk through the valley. And it's going to be thick, forest, dense, and intense as we go into Romans 1, 2, and 3. So we encourage you, if you're listening, to march through that with us. Because at the end, there's a lot of beauty in the gospel. But in order to really appreciate it, you have to go through the full hike first. You have to go through the um, depths of the forest in order to see the heights of the gospel as they will come in the book of Romans. So Doug, can you introduce this passage for us? Tell us a little bit about what's going to be going on and reading, read it for us. Definitely. We are going to actually start by reading Romans 1.16 and go all the way to Romans 1.32 because Paul in that passage says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation. But in this passage, there are a lot of things that Christians can easily feel ashamed about in our culture. Even as we're going to be discussing it, there's things that will feel a little bit uneasy saying because this passage is anything but morally relative. There's a lot of condemnation that's put here. We're going to see the wrath of God portrayed against sinful humanity. We're going to see the argument that general revelation is not sufficient to be saved, but it's sufficient to condemn us. We're going to see God talking about humanity becoming fools as they go away from him. There's an explicit condemnation of homosexuality. And there's the assertion that humanity, left alone, is going to spiral down until there's no hope for us. So this passage is really laying out the condition of humanity apart from God. What hope do we have as creatures in creation apart from the creator none. And I'll start here by again reading Romans 1, 16, and then we'll progress through the rest of the chapter and then talk about some of these points. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world of the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. One of the things I find interesting is Romans 1.17 says that in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. But then Romans 1.18, the first thing that is revealed is the wrath of God from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. As you guys look at Romans 1.18, that's saying that the wrath of God, what is going on? there yeah it's kind of an interesting passage because when people think of the wrath of god in general this isn't the passage that usually comes to mind or this idea i think most people often think about the old testament um and you see something like sodom and gomorrah where they're burned up and i think that's most people's connotation with the wrath of god and that's what we would call or in the theological community called the active wrath of God in active punishment. But here, this is bringing in a term called the passive wrath of God. And the passive wrath of God essentially means, and what we're seeing here is people are rejecting God and saying to God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's kind of summing up what this passage is. I don't want you to be God. I want to make something else God. And this is the root of all of our sin that we're seeing here in this passage and exchanging the glory of God for other things, for other glories. The word glory means giving weight, value to something. And so the root of our sin is we put something else in God's place, make that ultimate, live for that, say that that's what gives me worth, that's what gives me value, that's what gives me meaning, this is what gives me my identity. If I don't have this, my life isn't worth living. And so we put something else in God's place and we make that ultimate. And then the passive wrath that God hears, God saying, you know, if, if that's really what you want, you can have it. If you don't want to have anything to do with me, giving us up to those things and letting us run away from him, essentially. Yeah. You see God clearly revealing himself in creation and yet people rejecting it. Um, <clears throat> verse 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
And verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we see this idea that these nations historically have gone under other gods. They've uh, nations, people, groups, they've exchanged the glory of God. And Paul in chapter 2 is going to turn on the Jews because if they would be quick to just simply point out and say, ha, look at the sin of these other people, he's going to say, hey, you actually don't have an excuse because if you judge others, you've stumbled in exactly the same way. But here we're seeing this condemnation of idolatry. And he, he specifically points out literal idolatry. They, they claim to be wise, but like Greg was saying, they exchange God's glory. For some, that looks like images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, just literally idols. But a really good point in here is that it's talking about how God is actually clearly known. And so whether you're exchanging his glory for a literal physical idol or whether you're exchanging it just for your own American dream and your own success and your own life that's built around yourself or your career as your functional idol, your functional God, um, the point is the same is that God has been known. And so through God's creation, we are without excuse. This is where it's interesting um, even to think about there's different arguments that are made in philosophical circles about knowing God and why we should follow God and things like that. And one of them that I actually think is really good is the one that would say God is made known throughout creation. And so there is no excuse to reject him. But as we'll talk about, knowing God through creation isn't the same thing as knowing the gospel. And even if creation is sufficient to show us that there is an eternal, powerful God who we should submit to, um, that's not the same thing as um, having the gospel revealed to us that brings about repentance and faith. And so you can have people who are secular and say, I really don't believe in God. And I think that's accurate, even according to this passage, because it talks about becoming fools, claiming to be wise and becoming fools. And that the ultimate issue in the world is not that there's not enough evidence to know that God exists, but the ultimate issue is that our hearts actually become hardened towards this God who has revealed himself. And so the fundamental problem of humanity, and this is really fascinating, is not just a lack of knowledge, but it's a lack of love. Yeah. And it's not as though we're unbiased in how we see and interpret the world. And I just think of like the smallest illustration of if you're watching a football game, say you're watching the Broncos versus the Steelers, which I've been in that situation because I'm a Steelers fan, or historically have been. I haven't watched much football lately because I work on Sundays often. But say you're a Broncos and Steelers <laughs> game, and the Broncos fans, if they see the Steelers make a catch in the end zone and it's contested, they're going to be like, that's not a touchdown, that's not a touchdown, no way. Um, and the Steelers fans are going to be, of course that's a touchdown, you know, that's good. It's Two people are looking at the same evidence, but they're biased because their hearts are in it. And if it can be something as small as football that our hearts get biased, and we have to ask the question, how much can that happen when it comes to the Almighty God who demands our whole lives? And I think what we're seeing in Romans 1 is a rejection of that God and a spiral down into sinfulness that's rooted from a heart that's in rebellion towards God. Yeah. It's interesting to look at even how worship plays into this passage. Because if you look at 21, they don't honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
So it's like, oh, we're not honoring God. We're not worshiping him as he's due. But instead, we're going to worship something else. So the issue isn't just, hey, we don't know enough, like you're saying. But it's we're worshiping the wrong things. Instead of worshiping God as the creator, we're overturning creation and putting ourselves on the top and removing God. And as soon as you take God out of the picture and put humanity on top or put your possessions or your experiences or something else on top there's going to be ramifications that go down to all aspects of society and i think what we see a lot in the world why it would hate this idea of this passage is that our world wants to believe okay apart from god we can restore the goodness of creation we can get back to this utopian garden of eden but the downward spiral here is no Apart from God, you're only spiraling further and further into darkness. So, Doug, how do we actually see this downward spiral occurring in this passage? That's a great question, Mark. I think one of the things that is helpful is to see that there's a repetition of a few ideas. So, first, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and then God gives us over. So, the very beginning of this passage we're suppressing the truth and then verse 23 says that we exchange the glory of the immortal god for images and then verse 24 says therefore god gave them up to their lust verse 25 says that they exchanged the truth about god for a lie verse 26 for this reason god gave them up to dishonorable passions and then verse 26, as the women exchange natural relations, the men like always gave up natural relations. And then verse 28, then God gave them up. So there's this pattern of exchanging God for images and exchanging God for creation and exchanging God for um, different like views of sexuality. And then in each of those, God gives them up to what they're desiring. So C.S. Lewis says that there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And the person to whom God is saying, thy will be done, is, may feel like, hey, I've got freedom to express myself how I want. But in the context of this passage, that's actually the wrath of God that then leads down to the bottom of the barrel in verse is 28 to 32, where there's this extremely filled list of sin that looks a lot like what we see in our own hearts, but just goes one after another, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, all these other sins, and then culminates at the bottom of not only doing what's wrong, but actually calling evil good and approving other people in their practices of evil. So there's this spiral down that results from us exchanging the place of God and then him allowing us to go further in that exchange. So actually God allowing us to go further is even his wrath here in this passage. Greg, did you have an example of maybe what that could look like? Yeah, I I think this is just a passage that I refer to a lot in ministry and i think every time i give a gospel presentation over the past couple years this has just worked its way in because i think it's so indicative of the root of our sin in our lives as i was mentioning earlier but exchanging the glory of god putting something else in god's place just i mean 
I can think of a lot of practical examples in my life, and this is something I encourage people to think through of how are, how is the root of their sin tied to this. And so I think about, I have a big focus just on my reputation and what people think about me. And often in the place of God's glory, I put my own glory, wanting glory for myself. And so I find that a lot of my life, a lot of my fears, a lot of my anxieties can often rotate just around how I think I'm going to be perceived by other people, a desire to be uh, seen highly by other people. And essentially it's a desire for my own worship and putting myself in God's place and seeing what's ultimate in the universe is my glory. And that's what gives me value and meaning and purpose. That's what my emotions ride upon. And so I think that's just a root of sin in my life. And it can be a lot of other things. It can be security. It can be comfort. It can be finances. Those are all things that in themselves are not bad things. And all these things are actually meant to point us to God and point to worship in God. And yet we take them and we turn them on themselves. And that's anything that can be food. It can be sex. It can be alcohol. It can be whatever it is, our reputation. We take all those things that are meant to lead us to God that are meant to create worship and overflow and delight to God. And instead we make them God. And so we take the gifts of God and we prefer the gifts to the giver and Mm. We say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Forget you, God. I'll take your stuff. And that's what the root of our sin is, exchanging the gifts or the giver for the gifts. Yeah. I think Romans 1, it is just one of those passages that you can't really dodge, you know. Um, As you look at it, it talks about everything from just the blatant idolatry of there's a physical idol to um, impurity, dishonoring God with your bodies, um, lust of your hearts in 24, um, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, it talks about um, homosexuality, so same-sex relationships and like entering into sexual relations between men and men and women and women. And so... I mean, it, it gets real uncomfortable as you go through that, especially in our culture, as you look at these passages. But then you go on in verses 28 and 32, and you get this whole list that kind of just, if it doesn't hit you, it's because you're not reading it. Like, you shouldn't be able to dodge this text. Um, Absolutely. It says, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They are gossips. It's like, oh, oh no. And so there's, I think there's a tendency. Disobedient to parents. Yeah, disobedient to parents. Like, oh. How'd that one make this list? Yeah, it's like, oh no. Like, disobedient to parent and gossips. Like, and there's a tendency, I think, in our culture to try and explain away difficult texts and say, okay, we're going to look at Romans 1 and, you know, same-sex relationships, as they're mentioned here, or these uh, men with men, women with women, there's a tendency for some people to say, you know, that wasn't really talking about monogamous, committed, long-term partnerships between men and men and women and women. That was talking about a certain version in the first century. And there's, there's many reasons why that's not really a helpful interpretation or faithful to the text. 
Um, but even just looking at the grand scheme of scripture, you can see pretty clearly God's design in, in sexuality. Um, we've talked about that in our same-sex relationships and uh, podcasts and in transgenderism and just even getting a perspective on that of the gospel that um, the gospel is for everyone, no matter what background they come from, no matter what they've done or what they've engaged in, there's hope. And Romans 1 is not excluding the hope of the gospel for people who are mm-hmm. same-sex attracted or who have been in same-sex relationships for the whole life. That's not the point of Romans 1. What it's doing is it's putting us all mm-hmm. under the, the pressing burden of this text to say, oh, no, like we need a Savior. And so there's a tendency, I think, in our culture to try and explain away these hard texts, but what we actually need to do is sit under them and allow them to be weighty, allow them to be heavy, and in the same breath that we say, yeah, you know what, like, it's condemning same-sex relationships, I think we also see in verse 24 just condemning giving ourselves up to lust and impurity. It's condemning all sexual Mm -hmm. sin. It's condemning a life that is committed to rebellion towards God, and if you gossip, you're under the wrath of God. If you're disobedient to yeah. your parents, you're under the wrath of God. And so if you can't get a visceral discomfort from this text, like you're not letting it do what it's supposed to do. Like this is the text that's supposed to put us in that position where we realize our need for a savior. And it's not one that is meant to point out any one person in particular. I think it's a text that's meant to point out all people in particular um, so that we together say, oh no, oh no but so that we can get to the point where we get to the gospel. Yeah, regarding um, homosexuality in this passage, I think it's helpful to see that same-sex relationships are not what starts the spiral, and they're also not the bottom of the spiral, but they are a part of it. And so how does that happen? Well, it's because humanity has given like God no place and how we view the world. So instead, of t- we've taken God out of the picture, which means that we also take out of the picture his design of what it means for us to be humans who walk as his image bearers. So he's made marriage to be a picture of the gospel. But if we don't believe in the gospel, then it makes sense that we would feel freedom to change the picture as humanity. So same-sex marriage isn't because this is the, as bad as it gets. Actually, it gets worse the barrel continues to like or that continues to go to the bottom of the barrel in Romans 1 28 to 32 and a lot of things that we see in our own lives of boastfulness foolishness faithlessness heartlessness I see those things in my own life um and this is where actually the bottom of it is but Romans 1 26 to 27 fits in that idea of exchange because it's one more way that humanity is exchanging God for themselves so it's exchanging god's picture of marriage for now our own picture of marriage and we were taking this good gift that god has given us out the blessing of marriage according to his design and saying we're going to now make it what we want it to be so it actually fits very well in paul's argument to address homosexuality here because he's talking about how have we exchanged god and even his gifts to make them now what we want them to be. And he's saying that marriage and the change of how we view marriage is actually a great example of the ways that we have gone away from God. And I think even if you talk about this in our culture, one of the ways that you could see 
just the ways that we view sex is so much about how I will be fulfilled and I will be satisfied. So in general, in sexuality, we make it all about ourselves instead of this is to be a picture of Christ in the church, of his self-giving love. So all of us have actually, in many ways, exchanged God's picture for marriage of loving another person before ourselves. And I still often want to make marriage all about me. But that's an exchange of God's plan. And homosexuality is just a clear example of exchanging God's design for our own. Yeah. Uh, Doug, even to follow up with that, <clears throat> I think we could, maybe it could be said that the bottom of the barrel didn't fall out in our culture, and we don't believe it fell out when there was the legislation of same-sex marriage. We believe right. it fell out, you know, thousands of years ago when sexuality became about self-fulfillment, self-seeking, self-honoring, self-glorifying self-pleasing tendencies as opposed to the glory of Christ and it's just one manifestation of this very thing that all people without exception have participated in um, in this exchange of the glory of God for other things and so it's like yeah we have you know whether brother or sister is uh, experiencing struggles with same-sex relation um, relationships or with straight relationships, it's like it doesn't really matter as we look at this text of what we're going to go to and what we're going to drive to. So I just want to clarify that too. I think that's even just an important way that we view people and even that we view our own sin as these things being symptomatic of a deeper issue. And if if it was just these outward expressions of a heart that's turned away from God that needed to be fixed then the rest of the book of Romans would just be like, do this, don't do this. <laughs> it would kind of be the surface level, change your actions. And yeah. yet it's going to go a completely different direction and say what we really need is deeper than just moral change, than just willpower, white knuckling change in our lives. What we really need is a total overhaul of our heart. And what we really need is forgiveness for the ways that we've fallen short of this. And so it's, this deeper heart issue, one, the rebellion needs to be dealt with, which is going to be dealt with through the cross and Jesus Christ and completely forgiven and taken away in a way that we ourselves can never do, but only Christ can. And then it's going to talk about how we're given a new life, a new heart that actually is able to deal with this in different ways. Yeah. I think that's so helpful, Greg, because if we realize that the issue is not that we're, we need to try harder, but the issue is that we've removed God from his place then it makes clear the solution has to be from God being established back on the throne of our hearts. So then Christ has to come. He has to be here to address these things. Otherwise, we're going to continue to try harder and harder. But apart from the Lord, we cannot make creation the Garden of Eden. We're studying the book of Ecclesiastes right now, and it's pretty devastating in how the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to find meaning in life, meaning in creation apart from the creator, and he's unable to do it because it has to be a gift from God. And we're seeing here in Romans 1, 18 to 32, why we are so desperate for Christ because on our own, we spiral. Yeah, yeah. And it is incredible to think, Doug, you've shared this before. I know you probably got it from somewhere else, but 
the depths of the spiral we see here, we also have to remember as far as we go down into our sin, Christ went into paying the price of our sin. As far as we went into the experience mm-hmm. of our sin, Christ paid the wrath he, or he paid the punishment. Like um, he knows the depths of our sin because he took it upon himself on the cross. And even as we mm-hmm. go through Romans, that's part of why you have to see this, to see the beauty of the gospel. Because if we don't see just like this insane, terrible trade of God in his glory, we're not going to see what Christ really bore on himself in suffering and pain and wrath from God on the cross so that we might have free access to God, so that all of this would be taken, consumed, utterly, completely um, absolved by Christ's sacrifice for all those who put their faith in him. Yeah, that's Sinclair Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, Because he says that no matter how far we've gone down... Christ has gone further still. He went all the way to death and the grave. And God is bringing him back up to life. Yeah. So if we've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, there's hope for all of us. So if a person reads this passage and thinks, because I see myself in this sin, there's no hope for me. No, Christ has gone further still. Yeah, yeah. So that you might have life in him. And that is very good news. And we see God's grace by looking at how sinful we actually are. Good. Can you close us out? What would be some concluding thoughts to this? Yeah, I mean, probably just building on what you guys are talking about right now, that the places that cause the most shame in our life or guilt, uh, the most pain as we think about it, that's what Christ went to the cross for. And Ephesians 1 talks about how before the creation of the world, God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us as adoption, as sons, into his family. And so he's not regretting paying the price for our sin in full. And as we see the weight of our sin, instead of that leading us to shame and guilt, now what it leads us right to is the foot of the cross. And so um, it's only understanding our complete need and desperation for the grace of God that we understand the joy and hope that we have in the grace of God and that we actually get our eyes off of ourselves and our own self-reliance and ability to fix it or be a good person and realize the whole point is I'm not a good person and yet Christ died for me and God loves me fully. I'm fully known, fully loved because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So as we see the weight of our sin, instead of denying it, instead of trying to push that off, instead of trying to move on, too quickly let's actually press into our complete need for the grace of god and experience the forgiveness of god which is where this is going to just lead us and we're going to i guess keep going a little bit into some of the weight of our sin this next chapter or two but pretty quickly we're just gonna see how great the grace of god is towards us in this place of rebellion amen Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.